Sun Tzu, the Chinese strategist, tells us that strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. But tactics without strategy is just noise before defeat. My name's Jim Molan, and welcome to our Noise Before Defeat podcast. Welcome back to the Noise Before Defeat podcast with Senator Jim Molan. We've spent the past few episodes discussing Australia's domestic and international vulnerabilities and the need for a healthy level of paranoia to best protect ourselves against an uncertain future, which can at times be overwhelming. But today, we're focusing on Australia's strengths and our capacity to become a regional superpower in our own right. Senator, we finished off the last episode discussing that the US isn't necessarily in the same position it once was to come to our aid in the case of a major conflict, raising the question of whether we could do it alone. So to start off this episode, do you think we can? Yes. Uh, A simple answer is that, yes, I do think that we can. If we have the will and the time, we can do it. I think we have the will once we focus on the task at hand, but none of us have any idea how much time we have to do this, but it's certainly not the 10 years that we used to talk about in the past. My personal estimate, and I, and I have spoken about this in earlier podcasts, my personal estimate is about three to five years absolute max, and that's not much time, but we should choose as our planning horizon three years. I think that that is very prudent. And do you think we have any choice in the matter? Because I think, you know, being able to do it versus actually choosing to do it is quite different. Can we just step out of all this in some way? No, I don't think we have a choice. And and that's the tragedy of the situation that we're in. Uh, There are some pretty fundamental questions here. Freedom, democracy, a liberal tradition, and those kind of things that we value versus authoritarianism, abuse of human rights, allegations of genocide, denial of the rule of law. And if you don't do it, the choice is not to just stay as we are. And that's the sad thing about it. In the extreme, it is to be subsumed and dominated. What about our alliances here, though? We've been talking extensively about our allies over the past few weeks. Could we turn to them for help? Well, we're aligned with the US in any number of ways. And alliances are absolutely essential. In fact, I always say that our alliances are our first line of deterrence. But again, an alliance is only as strong as the nations that the alliance consists of. An alliance is not a substitute for Australia being strong itself and being self-reliant. By being self-reliant within an alliance, we can bring strength to that alliance when we stand some hope of deterring conflict. So let's not hang one by one. We always need to go back to recognise that the threats to our sovereignty are very, very real. We're not just making this up. The threat is coming to us initially by way of tensions due to the assertive or aggressive behaviour of China. And the threat may then develop, as we discussed, intentionally or accidentally into actual war. The whole basis of this podcast is that Australia must guard its sovereignty by becoming self-reliant across the necessary parts of the nation so that we are, for the first time in our history, prepared for what might happen. And we can do it by ourselves, given the right national security strategy and a bit of time. 
At the moment, we have no national security strategy that covers all aspects of the nation, and we don't know how much time we have. And it's not a good start for the most demanding period in our history since 1945. <laughs> what we do have, though, is our prosperity, and we've previously touched on that really delicate balance between prosperity and security in our national priorities. Is that prosperity not a great strength of ours, and are there maybe other nations you would look to that you think strike a better balance between those two in your eyes? Uh, yes, I think that our prosperity is still high, even though we've just been smashed by COVID. Yep. You know, our security potential is really considerable and our prosperity is a very big part of that. And most Australians would be surprised at this. Before COVID, we had the 12th largest GDP in the world. I mean, here we are, a country of 25 million people, the 12th mm. largest GDP in the world. But even more astonishing, Russia had the 13th largest. Wow. Russia's GDP is smaller than Australia's. We were, prior to COVID, first, second or third in personal wealth in the world, depending on how you measure it. And, and we had made a national decision that prosperity, we'd made this decision for the last 75 years, we had made a national decision that prosperity is more important than security. And that was a logical decision over that period of time because the US looked after our security. But unfortunately, it's not a logical decision now. And as I said, Russia with a smaller GDP than ours really impoverishes its people to provide an exorbitant, a really disproportionate size of military and a nuclear capability. Mm. But on the other side, I'd say that Israel is almost a perfect example of a small nation which is self-reliant. It's democratic, it's prosperous, and increasingly it's becoming much more secure. It's not just because it has a big military, which it does, but because it has spread security across its entire nation. My exposure to Israel is extensive. Uh, working as, as a consultant to the Israeli government through various organisations, and I really came to the conclusion that Israel is an example that if you have the will, over time, a small nation can defend itself against massive odds. Israel's got a small population of six to eight million people. We have 25 million. They have borders with most of their once enemies and we have a full continent. They are a very high technology country and so are we. Uh, they have the strength of a democratic society and so do we. We have far better alliances, probably more friends and vast strategic depth. Their country uh, is only at its narrowest a few kilometres wide. Yeah, well, I think we forget that, just how small it really is. And so while we might not be there yet, and we have, of course, covered extensively the vulnerabilities that we still face, can you talk us through what you think some of our strengths actually are? You know, do we have strong security potential? And what do you see as the main strengths we have already that we can work with? Uh, yes, and we do have very great security potential, but unless we manage it and turn it into reality, reality or move closer to turning it into reality, it's of no use to us at all. Yep. The strengths that we have to work with are many, but I'll, I'll try and group them as much as I can. And I guess the first is geography. And geography in relation to security is still very, very important, regardless of the advances in technology. Mm. We have our own continent, as I said before, and our close border region 
uh, between us and our neighbours is relatively secure. And by that, I mean we don't share land borders with an assertive neighbours, and that's a real advantage. Yes, I uh, what I once used to lament as a uni student about how far we were away from everywhere that I wanted to travel. Now I actually really appreciate <laughs> that as giving us quite a buffer of security. And I assume that our resources on that continent are also a big plus for us. Uh, yes, they certainly are. Uh, at the moment, we tend to dig them up and export them, receive money and buy the things that we need to contribute to our security. If we are to be self-reliant, we need to plan to use more of them ourselves if we are cut off from overseas sources of manufacturing goods. And of course, we should do that anyhow, because that creates prosperity and it creates jobs. And it's certainly the Morrison government's policy on coming out of COVID. To use those is a vastly more complex operation than just digging them up and putting them in ships. And of course, our government, as I said, is moving very impressively to start doing this. Uh, and, and we should peak in that in some way at the start of next year. Mm. I think something that happens when we do talk about things at this governmental and nation level is we forget about the people that make up that nation or those nations. So what about our people in all of this? Well, well you're right. Our, our people are our resource, not just because they might fulfil certain functions, but because a government in a crisis needs the support of its people. So our people are a key strength. Our population is well and truly large enough to defend this nation if we had to. Yep. It's well educated as a population and we have an education and training system, the envy of the world, so we can adapt if we need to adapt. We might read about tensions in our newspapers and on our TV every single day, but the degree of social cohesion amongst our people is relatively high. Uh, sometimes we might think otherwise, but I think it is high. <laughs> and I guess this is due to the tradition of the rule of law, where our rights as individuals are strongly protected. Mm. We have a settlement history which is different from other countries. And, of course, we're a liberal democracy where an, an individual has great importance. And our people really know, I reckon, that they have a defined constitution and their rights are protected by that. Although in crisis, we normally surrender some of our rights for the security that we want. And we also have this extraordinary tradition of individuality in Australia. And again, that is something which is very, very valuable in a crisis. Definitely something I appreciate as an Aussie citizen, but if people are a strength, then what about the fact that we have such a small population mass in comparison to, say, China that has over a billion people? Surely that then gives them the overwhelming advantage? Well, I wouldn't be too frightened of nations with vast populations just because they have a vast population. Uh, sometimes very large populations are as much of a hindrance as they are a help in modern defence and security. But we, we should never forget that China does have a highly skilled element in its population and we should never underestimate them as we arrogantly underestimated the Japanese in World War II. Mm. But moving on just from population, Sarah, I reckon that our federal system is a strength. People may not think that as we go through tensions between states and federal government related to COVID, <laughs> but we are used to our constitution and people are becoming more knowledgeable about it. We're used also to the limits it places on the federal government. But what we do know is that the kind of powers a federal government might want to use to prepare the nation in a national security sense are either there as formal powers or we can achieve the aims that we as a federal government want 
by paying for it as we raise most of the taxes. So our financial ability to pay and to even borrow is very, very high. In our well-governed federal system, that's a real bonus. And this is really assisted by a highly capable public service. Everyone stands around and knocks the public service, but they are a highly capable public service in most cases. And we have a highly capable diplomatic capability. And given, as I say, that diplomacy through alliances is our first line of defence, uh, that's very, very important. And although we don't see much of it, we also have a very, very capable intelligence community. And I, I guess that Australians have a deep understanding of alliances. And this is something which many other countries don't have. We have never fought in a war outside of an alliance. So we know what alliances do, the difficulty of alliances, and how to use alliances to our own benefit. Mm. And I talk about our industrial base, and sometimes it can be a vulnerability, but it's still relatively broad in its expanse across the skills needed, but it's just very, very small, and we need scale. We have so much to build on in this country. We've got some fabulously advanced elements in our industry. We're advanced in setting up a shipbuilding industry, both military and, and, and civilian, a commercial shipbuilding industry. We service an aviation sector that is very large and we have solid government policies that are moving us forward on manufacturing and, in fact, moving us into outer space as well in, in, in a very high-technology approach. So that leaves a lot of different factors for us to pull all together now. Do you think we're capable of doing that as a nation? Well, pulling it all together is the big challenge and that's why I talk about the need for an overall strategy. And we're seeing from the Morrison government almost every day of the week new policies, innovative policies, innovative ways of achieving them. And I have, must admit that I have never seen anyone better than the Prime Minister in implementing policies, turning policies into real effects. You're right, though, we are very competently solving problem after individual problem, not just related to COVID, but looking a long way into the future, and that's to our credit as a government. Australia has a Western approach to security and to planning, and that is very, very good. We just need to decide to do it, to focus on it as national security, and then to resource it. And let me finish by talking about the military. We have a highly capable military, which is high technology. We have an admirable military tradition, and that's very, very important. But as I've said before, our current military, for the task it's got to face, lacks lethality, it lacks mass, and it lacks sustainability for the tasks ahead. But it's a fabulous base to build on as long as we do it over a reasonable time and to a logical plan and we don't try and do it as we've done on every other occasion on the night before disaster. <laughs> well, you've talked previously about the idea of then stress testing those strengths to make sure that they actually do fare well. Let's look to the last time we were tested with a serious security challenge in World War II. How do you think we fared then? Well, you're quite right. Uh, we did pick the right side in World War I and World War II, <laughs> but World War II was the last time that we faced a serious security challenge, and that was now 75 years ago. All the young soldiers uh, who experienced that and the, the, the manufacturing base and the families, uh, very few of them are here to advise us on how to do it. And our population in 1945 was only 7.4 million compared to the 25 million we have now. The total strength of our military in 1945 was 600,000 soldiers, sailors and airmen. And 
that's all from that population of 7.4 million. But over the period of the war, we had a million soldiers. From our 7.4 million population, we had a million men and women go through all arms of our services. The Navy, for example, had 150 combat ships, half the size of the current US Navy. Wow. Well, and this is where it gets even more astounding. The Air Force had 75 flying squadrons with 5,500 aircraft, which made it the fourth largest Air Force in the world. And the Army was about half a million strong. And by 1945, many had been demobilised because we needed to produce more food. So to match that, the economy was capable of producing almost all the vehicles, weapons and ammunition used by Australian forces by the end of the war. Uh, this was a war economy. It was centrally directed with manpower controls and a government with five years of experience running a war and an economy. It didn't come naturally. It took years after the war started and we were just lucky that the war took so long to focus on the north of this country. So definitely a vastly different landscape to what we're facing now. And what could we do now? What major questions does that leave open for us in these modern times? Well, as I say, it all comes back to the will and the time. And in, in the, the, the Second World War period, in the time of Industrial Age War, we had that time to build up over several years, as I've spoken about. You're unlikely in any circumstances to get that amount of time in modern high technology war. So it's essential to do as much now as can be done before the crisis appears. Mm. And I guess if you take a very basic rule of thumb and, and given that technology plays a totally different part in the military and in manufacturing, this nation could probably sustain a military of 10% of the population as we did in World War II uh, and that would mean that we'd have two and a half million people in the military. And that might not be necessary, but could we get the planes and tanks and ships? And that's always the question. There is no two ways about it. Australia could make uh, Second World War tanks and planes and ships without looking sideways. But can it make a joint strike fighter? Mm. Can it make the kind of submarines that we hope to be able to build now? And the major question this leaves open is that we could generate a lot of people, but what really does a mass of people deter without the advanced weaponry to, to, to match with them? And if deterrence fails, what kind of a war could we win with such a group? You fail in deterrence if you can't win. So if your deterrence has failed because you can't win, you are in big trouble. And then how long would it take us to realise the potential to either deter an attack on us or to win a war if we failed in those circumstances I was just talking about? And these are the questions that a national security strategy must answer. And where do you think we are at the moment in realising that potential? You know, how far along are we or how far along do we, you know, how far do we have to go? Uh, we, we have a very capable federal government, but I guess you'd expect me to say that, being a member of <laughs> But we do have a very capable federal government and we are very experienced in what we as a government do. We won't be perfect. No government ever is. We see friction in the federal state system, uh, uh, but we're coming to understand that. And the Commonwealth has the powers it needs in a major emergency to do what it wants. We've governed relatively well through the droughts, the fires, and now COVID. And while governing, governing through these three natural disasters, the federal government has been able to maintain its governing and its initiatives. 
it's not a one-trick pony, as I've said before. It's passed legislation and shown policy innovation in a large number of areas, particularly while at the same time managing COVID to a high world standard. Mm. The federal government and the states have looked after their people with some increase in the federal-state friction. Now, we haven't forgotten how important the people are and the amount of money that we poured into Job Seeker and Job Keeper is an example of, of this. Cooperative federalism perhaps exists at the working level in these emergencies, but, yeah, there's a lot of friction there. Uh, in order to handle natural disasters and their economic consequences, the government, government is speaking of preparedness, it speaks of self-reliance, it speaks of resilience and sovereignty. Not perhaps in relation to the reasons that I, I'm advocating here and perhaps not with any apparent understanding of the need of traditional security implication of these particular terms. Okay, so we've made a start, but to wrap up today, what do you think remains to be done? What do we still need to do? Well, we fared better than many countries given how we've handled the fires and COVID this year. We're starting to look at our cyber, our defence strategy, our military, and now, most importantly, our manufacturing base. We've got the potential to defend and to secure this nation. We have the government doing very well in its ability to govern in a very trying time. We just need to fit everything together. We need to keep asking the question, how does all this fit together? The way to fit it all together is through an overall comprehensive strategy, which other countries call a national security strategy. And the derivation of that strategy is the first step to securing our sovereignty through self-reliance so that we are prepared, as we've spoken about, for our future. And the time to start implementing that strategy is after COVID has been handled and the economy is on the way back. And in the medium to long term, we should start implementing but we can plan now. Today's priority is to manage health and the economy. But the time to assess and derive that strategy is now, right now, so that we will have done all the clever thinking parts by the time we get out of COVID. Mm. Well, it's been great to cover some of the strengths and the potential that we have to do that. But Senator, I'd just like to finish off by asking, do you think we need to become a superpower? Yes, and I use the term superpower uh, as a contentious term, <laughs> by my assessment, we are a regional superpower now in many aspects of our economy, certainly, and we're very effective diplomatically while our military is a fine base for expansion. We just need to pull it all together to prepare this nation for the future and it's my obligation, I guess, in the final episode of this six-part series to offer you my solution, and I'll try and do that in the next part, which is titled... Uh, interestingly and strangely enough, it's titled, We Stress Test Banks. Why not national security? <laughs> well, I think that's an actually a wonderful way to put it. It really does hammer home how much sense it makes to actually do that. So in the next and final podcast, we will talk through those next steps and some final action plans for securing our great nation. Join us next week for the final episode of this Noise Before Defeat podcast series. If you did enjoy listening along, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and recommend it to a friend. For further information on the topics we covered today or to learn more about the Senator's plan for a national security strategy, please visit his website, jimmolan.com. 